This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. The Christian hope in the resurrection of the body is nothing short of absolutely radical. It not only gives meaning to the hereafter, but also to the right now. Because if we are raised with our bodies, then everything that happens in our bodies, through our bodies, and with our bodies takes on permanent significance. Christians know this through their faith in Christ, who raised from the dead promises the same for those who live in him. But does this decisive aspect of our faith truly shape our imaginations and affect the way we see the world, each other, and ourselves right now? This hope should change everything. But if you find hope like that hard to come by, especially in these recent months, then I've got just the book for you. Today on the show, I discuss the new novel, End of Ending, with the author Josh Nome. This is Josh's book debut, but believe me, he crafted a narrative of an ultimately hope-filled vision of this very ordinary world that I can't help but think is just the kind of truly realistic fiction we need right now. Josh joins me, Leonard DiLorenzo, for this episode of Church Life Today, brought to you by the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and Redeemer Radio. We're recording this episode in person, safely distanced, from the deck in Josh's backyard. Josh Nome, thanks for joining me. It is a pleasure. I'm excited. So Josh, I had the good fortune of reading your novel, The End of Ending, I think within days of its release. And I got to tell you, I think I told you this before, the book left me with really like this rush of hope. And I found that it wasn't, you know, like the kind of hope that is either flimsy or cheap, but it was hope that for me, I thought was based in real life. It had real suffering and real longing. So I wanted to ask you, did you set out to write a hope-filled novel or did you just kind of like write your way there, end up there? Yeah. <laughs> I went to the MDiv here at Notre Dame and a spiritual director I had here, when she was talking about faith, she said, with faith, it's less about where your mind is at or where your heart's at and more about where your butt's at, <laughs> which I love uh, because faith lives in our bodies, right? And so does hope and love. Uh-huh. And I just like, and that's the same place where fiction lives too. Good, uh-huh. good storytelling has to live in your body in some way. It has to be an experience that you share with somebody. You have to tell a story in a way that someone can receive it and feel it in their, in their body and, and share that experience. So there's kind of a confluence there between good fiction and faith and hope. And when I um, started, uh, this is my first novel, so I had to kind of figure out how to write a novel. Right. And uh, I was workshopping scenes and kind of just trying on dialogue and different bits. And I found I got bored pretty easy because I was doing these exercises I really didn't care about. Like I wasn't really connected to the characters. And so maybe that says something about my attention span. But I realized <laughs> that to do this well, I needed to dive into a story that I really cared about. Yeah. And I'd been kind of like thinking about this idea of applying the imagination to the resurrection of the body Mm. for a long time, for a long, long time. Just knowing that the tradition, Christian tradition has examined the incarnation from a lot of different aspects in a lot of different ways and presented that reality in in human dimensions in a lot of ways. But no one's really done that with the resurrection of the body and applied our imagination to it and helped people maybe just start to think about or imagine what Mm -hmm. it would be like. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the genesis of the story was thinking about how could I... Uh, write a story that has the stakes of kind of this final disposition of the body and encourage people to 
like experience that that reality in kind of a new way. Yeah. So this is interesting because like I think when most of us would think about something being written on the resurrection of the body, we would certainly think that this is going to be like a theological treatise. This is going to be something analytical, um, systematic. But you wanted to write about hope in the resurrection of the body, specifically in fiction, to kind of generate a narrative and tell a story that didn't necessarily teach that, but hmm. made it, you know, created the kind of world, a kind of setting where we could imagine yeah. that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. Uh, so something that people could kind of like, a world that they could kind of step into and walk around in. Yeah. But it's our world. I mean, so this isn't, you know, we're not on Venus. This isn't, right. you know, a, one of the space trilogies yeah. of C.S. Lewis or anything like that. Like, yeah, it was this world. Yeah, it was important to me to, to make it very relatable. And I mean, this is this is the central mystery of our faith that the faith comes to us in human form mm-hmm. in, in in forms in ways that we understand there's characters in this novel who are kind of contemplating the mystery of what's happening and thinking well why would it be happening in north central indiana and right. and someone else responds that you know when it happened in bethlehem people probably wouldn't have really understood why why it was taking place there either yeah. so i just love kind of this quotidian everyday ho hum setting and location for this um, because it's so, you know, and, and it happens in modern day. It's it's a place that we all know. We all recognize. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you talk a little bit about setting there um, in the middle of Indiana. So can you tell us a little bit about the setting of the novel and yeah. the ending? Where did you place this? What kind of things do we see yep. in this setting? Yep. That was one of the first decisions I had to make when I started <laughs> writing this. It's like, where's where this are take we? Place? Yeah, exactly. And I thought about Indiana and I started researching some of the history of Indiana and mm. uh at the turn of the century, there is this, when Indiana was being, uh, before the turn of the century, when Indiana was being settled by Europeans, they discovered a, a natural gas field here. And that sparked my imagination and kind of ran with that. It really kind of set the horizon for the rest of the story. So it takes place in north central Indiana, a fictional town called Andover. The main character's name is Bryant Black Fox. He grew up in a Pine Ridge reservation in South Dakota. It's my home state. Mm-hmm. And uh, he went to school and studied biology and found that his interest in, uh, in a brew kit exceeded his interest in producing <laughs> ethanol at the plant as a tech. And so he just dove into beer and found, yeah. found the science behind it fascinating. And he's, uh, the opening scene, he's selling beer at a, at a baseball stadium, minor league baseball stadium in Andover, where the Flambeaux play, the Bows. And um, that's where he meets Esteline, who's a, a graduate student, and uh, they fall in love. Esteline is part of her grad studies involves a long-term dietary study of a group of uh, religious men uh, and their Holy Cross brothers uh, living in Andover. And um, they start to notice some peculiarities um, in the community. And she finds that they're starting to uh, set aside their walkers and they're appearing more youthful. Uh, There's one scene where she opens up the lid to a dumpster out back uh, behind the hall and it's littered with uh, these walkers and the the bright green tennis balls that yeah, you know yeah, that yeah, coat, yeah, right. the, coat the bottom. Sliced, right. sliced in four Just or whatever. Kinda, yeah, yeah, they're kind of like floating around in the sludge in the bottom of this dumpster. It's like, what's going on here? And it turns out so that a key point, kind of the hook in the first 50 pages is that these brothers are demonstrating their blood work contains a pregnancy hormone. Mm. So there's something biologically happening here. And then, They're not pregnant. Right, they're not <laughs> okay. pregnant. Right, to so be clear. It, it's not that weird. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's weird in other ways. Not in that way. <laughs> right, yeah. that's right. So the rest of the story is kind of the unraveling of that mystery and what it means, Mm. especially what it means for people who are facing despair. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, you've brought up 
already there's like so many things that I find interesting. So first of all, I find interesting like a baseball stadium and beer. Like these are yeah. some things that I know you know about, right? They say they say write what you know. <laughs> write what you know. So how are you drawing on some of your own interests like baseball and beer to kind of create this this uh, sort of world for us to walk into, yeah. this setting, this place, these characters? It's funny, when I read back through uh, reading drafts of this uh, in the editing process and publication process, I realize there's a lot of like food and drink and beer imagery. So I think that probably says a lot about my own tastes. Yeah. So there's two parts there. Beer is one thing, right? There's this, I mean, we're sharing beer right now. We are. <laughs> right now. <laughs> so there's this kind of like, uh, well, I mean, it's like, you know, you, it, it's a drink that you share when you're sharing fellowship, you know, and uh-huh. it kind of livens conversation and yeah. So there's certain a certain communion that happens, I think, with beer. Um, that I wanted that I wanted that to be a key component to this this story in the sense of like the kind of communion that's possible. And then with with baseball, it's very very much kind of the same. The cover of the novel is this photo that I took from Four Winds Field, Kowalski Stadium here in South Bend. You know, the sun is setting, the game's being played, and that puts you in a place, and it's a place of timelessness. And that element was really important, too, that these, both beer and baseball, are ways to, in some small way, to touch the eternal, or the way that the eternal kind of touches touches our experience. Mm. Um, yeah, and there's, I mean, I, I could, we could probably do another three or four podcasts on, <laughs> on <laughs> baseball, baseball and yeah, beer. I'm packing all that. Josh and Lenny coming to you with baseball and beer. <laughs> That'd be great. I love that. We wouldn't even have to plan anything. we just start talking. It'd be great. <laughs> There's a great book, Bart Giamatti, former commissioner of baseball. He mm-hmm. was commissioner of baseball for like nine months. Seemed to be placed on this earth for the full, sole purpose of uh, banning Pete Rose from baseball because <laughs> he died soon after. Uh, but he wrote this short little note. He's also, he also taught literature at Yale. Yeah. And um, he wrote this short little book called Take Time for Paradise, where he explores the ins and outs of baseball and kind of the the, the hermeneutic that undergirds it in terms of timelessness and recreation and how it's an image of the divine. There's this kind of, you know, this journey out across the bases and a return home. And so, like, there's so many, it's just such a rich setting for a story like this, especially that kind of, like, returning home, that going out and coming back and and returning home. I wanted that to be a a crucial part of the setting, too. Mm. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. I'm talking with Josh Nome about his debut novel, The End of Ending. It's available now at Amazon.com. So, I mean, you have the interest in baseball. You got the interest in beer. You mentioned in passing before your main character, Bryant Black Fox, is from South Dakota, yeah. your home state. There's a number of different points in this, just because I happen to know you, the author, a little yeah. bit outside of this, that some of your own story, your own autobiography is coming through, even though this isn't an autobiographical novel. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, some of the things that you've experienced, spent time with, places you've been, have, you know, you're clearly drawing from things that you know. Can you tell us a little bit about some of these things that work their way in, in addition to baseball and beer, the places or the types of people that we yeah. meet? Yeah. You know, part of the inspiration for using religious brothers in the story came from ex- an experience I had in Florida. So I my, started my career in the, in the Catholic press. I was a reporter and editor and reporter in Venice, Florida and the Gulf Coast of Florida. And uh, it's an interesting community. The diocese is kind of uh, split. The coastal communities are largely retirement communities, mm-hmm. um, rather affluent. And then 50 miles inland, you've got all this farmland where the nation's tomatoes and watermelons are grown, largely populated and worked by immigrant farm workers. So, yeah, I mean, that, the when I was reporting, I remember wanting to kind of get into that world. It's very easy to kind of 
fall into where all the stories are along the coast. That was no problem. It was a little more of a challenge to uncover the stories of, of the farm worker community. And there was a small group of Christian brothers who welcomed me in. And they ran a, a tutoring center. And, and I remember going down there on several occasions and just reporting on what they're doing. Some of the legal aid support they were offering, they would always invite me to stop and stay for dinner. And, and I just remember being touched. This is really, this is before I, I went through the MDiv here and kind of my first real experience of religious life. So it was, you know, that those kind of dimensions, both the farm worker experience, uh, religious life experience found their way into this novel as something I was familiar with. Hmm. What kind of research did you have to do? I'm thinking in particular, you know, you were talking a little bit earlier about the resurrection of the body. And so clearly the body bodiliness is central to the novel without being, you know, something that you're writing a lesson about. You're actually just kind of painting the world for us in a certain way that mm-hmm. we really think about the quotidian nature of things mm-hmm. that we think about our bodiliness. But for example, you know, as you know, as you know, one of your, your main characters is a coroner, Isabel. Yeah. Um, and you've got to get a little bit into the world of a coroner's work. <laughs> yeah. What kind of research did yeah. you have to do to was, get into this? It wasn't pretty. <laughs> it wasn't pretty. Uh, I mean, Michelangelo, right? <laughs> Let's compare you to Michelangelo. Okay. He, he was breaking into basically morgues in the middle of the yeah. night. Just, well, we right? got Google now, so yeah, okay, we don't have we to do that. Google. We don't have to do it. Right. <laughs> so my, my Google search history is uh, not something I'm exactly proud of in this regard. Right. Um, Where do I put a dead body? <laughs> right, exactly. How, how quickly does a dead a d- body decompose? decompose? Totally, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, one of the things I found was that there's this, they call it a um, body farm in, that's in Texas, this forensic body farm. That's what it's called? Yeah. Totally disturbing. Entirely. Right. Yeah. I mean, these, I mean, you know, these detectives need to be able to see and understand and witness what a body looks like in various stages of decomposition. And so they'll put cadavers out in a field at different depths of burial, sometimes it's out in the open and just, you know, let them decompose for, for forensic purposes. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm Googling, <laughs> reading about that and then watching uh, uh, YouTube videos of people, you know, <laughs> digging up, digging up, uh, coffins and, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a thinker more than a feeler and that is definitely an advantage. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. So you're like, Oh, well, isn't that it's interesting? Just, right? It's yeah. just okay. like, just how it happens. Yeah. Okay. Right. All right. Yeah. I, what were your conversations like at home when you're doing this? <laughs> Stacy's very tolerant. Your wife. She's, yeah, okay. She's very All encouraging. Right. Yeah. Oh, well, oh, isn't that nice, Josh? Okay. Well, back to it. Please bring out the trash. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> That's, really good. That's really good. Um, so, you know, I want to go back to the, the Religious Brothers because they're a, a Holy Cross community of mm-hmm. Religious Brothers. Those of us who are in South Bend around Notre Dame know the Congregation of Holy Cross. Maybe some of the folks listening don't know the congregation so well, but you were educated in Notre Dame, yep. undergraduate degree, and as you mentioned a couple of times, your Master of Divinity, work in Notre Dame. You worked previously at the University of Portland, another yep. Holy Cross school. Yep. You know, what about this, the Congregation of Holy Cross and the Brothers in particular? I know you mentioned your time in Florida, but... Yeah. I suppose they could have been any religious community yeah, of right. brothers. Like what drew you to the, the congregation of Holy Cross? Yeah. There? Yeah. There's something about this congregation um, and the specific charism of community that they share hmm. that that's unique and worth exploring. So I just like the way that they hang together in kind of unspoken ways. That goes for the congregation wide. When it comes to the brothers, I was interested in, I was in, interested in the example of religious life, but also I like how, I just like how they're kind of this quiet example of service. Mm. Um, the brothers. The brothers yeah, specifically, yeah, you know. Yeah. And I think about the history of Notre Dame and 
you know how their blood is in the bricks and they're, they're, I mean they they farmed they baked bread they did I mean they did they taught they did everything and just how that stands in our history is just kind of this quiet foundation that's largely underground you know that mm-hmm. we don't we see all the time physically in front of us in terms of the buildings but you know it's not it's not father soren um giving grand speeches in front of in the ruins of a burned down main building or right. whatever um yeah so that kind of quiet example i think was really really important for this story um i'm setting them up for a kind of a fun climax at the end yeah um so in some ways you know their story the way they kind of function or their their role in the triumph of the story is is uh kind of a small a small way in which this story as a whole is a way to express the triumph of small things mm. those small interior things that live inside of us that are hidden that people don't see you know um and i just love how durable and important those realities are yeah that totally resonates with me at the moment because i'm gosh somewhere in the middle the vast middle of reading the Lord of the Rings to mm-hmm. my two younger boys who are six and eight. I think we're on page 500 and something or other of, <laughs> yeah. you know, 10,000 or however many pages there are. Um, but you know, clearly, you know, Lord of the Rings, this is a, a massive theme within there that while I forget exactly how the particular paragraph goes, it's so startling on this point, but you know, while the eyes of the great are elsewhere yeah. and, and doing the great things, it's often the small and the neglected that are carrying on the necessary tasks of the world. And basically history is decided unseen uh-huh. sometimes uh-huh. in those ways. So uh-huh. that really resonates with me. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm wondering as you're talking about that, um, you know, within, within your narrative itself, these brothers, you know, one of the things they do, in addition to their, their sort of quiet life of hanging together, they they provide a sort of day center for these yeah. under-resourced uh, kids, right? For yeah. these these folks, these young kids who and families, really, who fall outside the news, who mm-hmm. are part of the, the worker community. How did you imagine that kind of center and that kind of relationship of these brothers and the sort of steady, stable influence in the life of these families? Yeah. Yeah. You know that that whole aspect of the story with the experience of the farm workers was important to me. If you're if if I'm going to tell a story about hope and the resurrection of the body, you know, really we're talking about the triumph of the eschaton and and justice reigning in a new way. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I wanted to paint a picture where uh, of injustice, and this is one I was really familiar with. Again, going back to my time in Florida, just in the way that. That I mean, we were seeing it today, right? And this time, this pandemic, farm workers are deemed as essential workers, right? But mm-hmm. they're suffering disproportionately from the effects of this virus, and and that's just magnifying kind of the reality that's always been there, right? So yeah, and and the dynamic of um, of the witness of bro- the brothers and the way they put their lives on the line for for people who are on the margins was an example I wanted to I wanted to include. There's a there's a key character in the story. He comes into play in the, in the middle. Is he's a boy named Rafa, a grade school boy, and um, to protest his his father's uh, murder. His father was an organizing force with with farm workers, and he was murdered. And to protest this reality because it's such a big reality that he can't wrap his hands around or he can't really do anything about, he decides to go mute. And so, in a lot of ways, he's as a figure, he stands for the ways in which those those people they don't, they don't have a voice and in a lot of ways the the brothers and their accompaniment um are sharing that condition with them and lending their voice voice to those people 
Yeah. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. I'm talking with Josh Noam about his debut novel, The End of Ending. You can find it on Amazon now. Well, you mentioned uh, these religious brothers, some priests make their way into the story. A bishop makes his way into the yeah, story. Right. Like there are some Catholic folks yeah. that, are, that are in there, right? Um, do you, I don't know, like do you consider this a Catholic novel? Is it a religious novel? That's a really good question. <laughs> it's probably one that I think about when, as I was writing it. I was like, what is this really? Yeah. <laughs> what is the story? I wanted it to have an ecclesial dimension. Mm. Um, I didn't want that to be absent from the story, but that's not something that's driving the story. It's the human experience that's driving the story, really. And that has to be true of fiction. And, you know, otherwise a story doesn't work. Otherwise it's, mm-hmm. it's propaganda. So I wanted, I wanted this to be a story that resonated with any kind of a reader um, re- regardless of their religious disposition and convictions. Um, but I think uh, Christians will find it a familiar, the, uh, will find the turns that happen here familiar. You know, I mean, the Nicene Creed is something that 300 million people in this country <laughs> adhere to or repeat every Sunday, right? Yeah. That we look forward to the resurrection of the body. So, you know, this is, this is a, and that's, an, that's, a, that's a statement of faith, that's a statement of faith, but I wanted to use or kind of um, situate it in human experience as a way to, to illuminate it mm-hmm. and explore it. Mm-hmm. So is it a Catholic? Yeah. I, is it a Catholic novel? I kind of liken it to um, like maybe science fiction, right? Like yeah. uh, science fiction will draw on physics and astrophysics and, and I think, but it tells a human story, right? Yeah. It doesn't work if it's not a human story. Right, 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 right. And I think that's kind of, I'm using the religious principles in the same way that they're a starting point. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a, it's a human story. Well, I mean, it certainly seems to me that it comes from an imagination formed in a Catholic way. Yeah. Right. So in, from somebody who sees the world in a certain way, who has certain kinds of commitments that certain things matter in a certain way yeah, and yeah. other things matter in a different way, this kind of story becomes possible. But I, I really like what you're saying that it's not, you know, there's an ecclesial dimension, but it's not an ecclesial narrative. It's a ma- narrative of the human experience. So, yeah. I, I mean, I had that feeling probably not about the Catholic stuff because I get the Catholic stuff, right? Yeah. But there was other there were other things that I wouldn't get otherwise. So, hmm. we were talking about sort of the, the biological aspect of the decomposition of the body. Yeah. Or even the craft of brewing beer, which mm-hmm. I don't have experience with. I don't know about like the chemical mm-hmm. nature of that. I'm, I certainly don't have the same kind of experience that, that you've had uh, being around or with um, migrant workers. Mm-hmm. But I felt like, I mean, this is my own reaction to the novel. Like, I felt like you were you were taking me through that well enough that it wasn't it wasn't onerous to the the extent like I felt like it was a it was a class lesson. It was a narrative, but I also felt like I wasn't getting left behind. Like I could, you were teaching me enough about each of the things I needed to know that it pulled the narrative together. So I think, you know, my reaction to that, Josh, is thinking about folks who don't have that religious buy-in, who aren't Catholic, let's say. I I just feel like the ecclesial dimension, the Catholic dimension, would hit them in the same way. Hmm. Like, yeah. this isn't this isn't necessarily what I know about, yeah. but I can I know enough from what he's telling me that this works in this story. Right? Yeah, it's a lot like it's it, the Catholic dimension or the ecclesial dimensions function a lot in the same way that baseball does. Huh. It's kind of like a it's kind of a, a an aspect of the setting okay. that it happens in, and it, it it colors the story or tinges it, but um, not everything's writing on it. Right? Yeah, like. It, that's not, I'm not teaching a, teaching a lesson or, um, trying to prove a point. Um, 
it's one area that some of the humans that are in the story, that's the, where they live and what yeah. they do. You know? Yeah. And as that's part of the fun of writing a story is like, you get to pick who is a part of the story. <laughs> like who, <laughs> who, who am I going to bring in? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you've, you've been with this story now for what, a, close to a decade? Close to, I close think. Close to yeah. a decade. Okay. So, I mean, I can't imagine like sitting with a, a narrative, crafting a narrative that belongs, that kind of originates and resides in you and then slowly kind of makes its way out to the people you're talking to about it, your wife, um, some confidants and friends, but then you just release the book and (laughs) now it sort of belongs to others. It doesn't belong to you. Right. Right. So as you look back on this decade of kind of living within this story and now others being able to live within this story, what are some of your reflections on that? I have no experience of that. Like never having written a novel. I'd love to hear about it. I've been telling people it's thrilling. It's really exciting because this is uh, these ideas and these people have been living inside my head for so long. And to see him walking around in the world now and other people getting to meet him is really fun. It's also a little terrifying. <laughs> it's kind of like it's kind of like uh, walking through your neighborhood in your underwear. <laughs> you know, it's just like here I am. I've never done that on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody gets to see everything. You yeah. know, it's just like, now everybody knows what I think about. Right. You know, it's just out there. Um, I've never done it not on purpose either. <laughs> I should mention, I've just never done it, but it was kind of funnier to say I've never done it on purpose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it. I really felt like, again, going back to kind of like, this is, this is my first novel. So I, I wanted to write something that I felt the stakes in a visceral way. I felt mm. really, convicted about and um something that i felt strongly about and so you know uh there's this there's this great uh scene in walk the line with johnny cash yeah 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 he's trying to get in with the legendary producer the record producer he's got his band and they're kind of playing this gospel tune gospel tune that everybody you know it's very familiar at the time and the guy just stops him in the middle of it and he says you know i can get that anywhere Uh. but he says if you were hit by a car and thrown and dying in a ditch what would be the one thing what would be the one thing that you would want to leave for the world? And that's when he breaks out with a song, Folsom County blues, uh-huh. Folsom prison blues. Uh-huh. And that's kind of like the level of conviction that I brought to this, this story. Like that's, I went to that kind of a deep place mm. uh, to think about what's the, what's the one thing I want to, I want to leave. And I certainly felt when I finished this and now that it's out in the world, I certainly felt when, when I hit the publish button, it's like, I mean, I wouldn't wish, I wouldn't want this to happen, but if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, I'd be like, well, that, I that's gave it. That. I, I, yeah, that's, I've, yeah, that's out now. That's quite something. Yeah. Well, folks, the book is The End of Ending. The author is Josh Noem, my guest today. Last name is spelled N-O-E-M. You can find the book on Amazon.com, The End of Ending. You can find out more about Josh at his website, joshnome.com. That's J-O-S-H-N-O-E-M.com. Josh, thanks so much for this conversation today. I'm really grateful. This is fun. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Does debt have you down? Are you worried about your credit cards, your mortgage, or keeping your car? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union can help. Our people are trained to be financial physicians. 
They can give you a checkup, help you to heal, and then stay healthy. Don't be embarrassed, it's why we exist. When your body is sick, you go to see a doctor. When your finances are sick, you go to see the friendly folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits?